Well, hey, really quickly, over the last several weeks, it's been so good just to see so many new faces here. Uh, I've tried to meet as many as I can, uh, but if you're new, newer to Calvary uh, over the past several weeks, months or so, and just want to know what, what next steps there are. Uh, to kind of jump a little bit more. If you're here, like, okay, I want to know a little bit more now. I've been sitting, hearing, observing, and now I want to know a little bit more of how to be involved in the, the church ministry here. Uh, we'd love to invite you really quickly after service. I'll be right down here uh, to, to my left, your right. We're just going to have a, a really quick, uh, I always call it a meeting, but just a, a little quick gathering that we're just calling what are the next steps to take. Let's walk through it, kind of get to know you, and then uh, just share with you. Here's, here's ways that you can take if you want to take that next step into being more engaged and involved in the life here of the church. So I want to invite you to be a part of that uh, as, we, as we end our time here this morning. But as we jump in here now to, to Judges 2, the end of Judges 2, and to Judges 3 even, we'll get into the first about six verses or so of chapter 3 this, this morning. A, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I, we, we did this diet together. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, there's so many names for different diets out there. I th- think maybe keto, whatever the one is where you cut sugar out of your diet. We, we tried that. She was wanting to cut sugar out of her diet, and, and so I heard that's what she was going to do. I'm like, I'll jump in with you, uh, and I'll do that. How hard uh, can that be? Um, I, I think I made it three days three days. And I told her this the other day, hey, I'm sharing a story when we did this little diet together. I said, remember I made about three days. I think she looked at me and says, three days? Um, And so it was probably more like two. I probably made a couple days, if not even at the end of two days. I was miserable. It was miserable. Uh, I've I've never done anything like that before. Uh, It had no lasting effect on me other than I don't want to ever do that again. Um, During those two days, I guess, everywhere you looked, everywhere I looked, there seemed to be just temptations, right? It just seemed like everything was calling out to me. Every restaurant that we went to, every time I looked in the pantry at home, I'm making this sound like this was really drawn out. This is all over the course of probably 24, 48 hours, but anytime I would open the pantry, it seemed to be this overwhelming amount of temptations, right? This, this calling to come and eat me. Uh, to, to some degree, it was almost scary how I how I felt in those, in those couple of days, how my mind responded when something that my body craved and loved, sugar, was, was taken from it. Uh, all of a sudden, eating what I loved was, was all I could think about until eventually I, I gave in. It, it seemed as though everything was a temptation during those, those, those days of, of trial, right? And those temptations were, were amplified, and in my mind, I knew why I'm not going to make it through this. Uh, she's much stronger than I am. I don't even know how long she made it. Way farther than I said, hey, I'll cheer you on from the sidelines as I eat my ice cream. Uh, recently, I was listening to a, a, an audio book, and the author was sharing a story of how he trained uh, to run a marathon when he was in his mid-40s. And uh, so he spent the months preparing for this run and sharing about all the things he did to, to prep himself for this, this marathon. He, he talked with people that had run marathons before. He got advice from them. Here's what to do. Here's what not to do. Uh, he changed his diet. He sacrificed all sorts of things, uh, such as even sleeping in in the morning. He had to get up earlier in the morning to get the miles in that he needed to get in for that day to stay on track that he had set to be able to run this marathon. Uh, leading up to the, the marathon, he ran some 5Ks. Uh, I, I think about a month or so before the marathon, he ran a half marathon. 
He, he said, I, I mapped out in my mind, I knew the, the, the course of what we were going to run for that, that marathon. And so he mapped out in his entire mind the, the race. He visualized, he said, every mile, every landmark, and, and how much he know would be left in the race based on where he was in the race. That makes sense? So he's mapping it out and prepping his mind for what's ahead of him. And he says, I, I did all of this because he knew and he had heard from those who had run marathons before that there's going to be all these overwhelming distractions and temptations all around and within him to quit. He had heard that at the 20-mile at the mark of the race, he's going to experience this, this mind block of sorts where his body is just going to be so exhausted to go on, but at the same time, it's, he knows I'm, I'm close to the end but still, there's still like miles left. And so he knew and had heard that 20-mile mark is just going to be a killer. And I've got to push through that. He said as he was running that marathon, there were so many things fighting against him, warring against him to run this race and to finish it. Well, obviously, he finished the, 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 the marathon. And he was telling that story. And the whole, the whole book was really a, a point of how people can be these high-impact achievers in life and how they can accomplish goals set out for them. It was, it was really good, but as I was hearing that story and listening to that story, I thought about how much, how much that just seems to refer to life in general and, and what it feels like as Christ followers to stay faithful in our pursuit of Christ-likeness and holiness in, in a world that is continually trying to lure us away from him. And not only that, but even just our own sinfulness, which, which wants to tempt us and, and draw us away from him. And so how do, we, how do we remain faithful to God when the temptations of this world are so overwhelming? Uh, the well-known hymn that I'm sure many of us are familiar with here, Come Thou Fount, even reveals the problem within its own lyrics that, that we as human beings feel as disciples of Christ, wanting to pursue holiness, pursue Christ, but still recognizing our own sinfulness, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the song says. You ever feel that temptation to wander? Do you recognize within yourself how quickly we can stray? How do we stay faithful to the Lord when everything in this world and even the indwelling sin that still remains within us, tempts us to chase after other gods, tempts us to wander, tempts us to, to forget the goodness of our God. In, in the text that's before us this morning, we, we read the devastating account of Israel's unfaithfulness and their abandonment of God. And yet, in the text, we're also seeing through it, in those words, the faithfulness of God. We're seeing the mercy of God. We're seeing the grace of God. We're seeing the patience of God. And we're seeing as well the deliverance that comes from God. And, and we learn and see as the Holy Spirit illuminates the text to us how, how we then, by God's grace alone, can stay faithful to our great God and our great King. And so here's what we're going to see in the text this morning, that since God has plundered the house of the enemy, since, since God has left it in ruin, we can and we must walk in victory and obedience, casting aside all that would cause us to be unfaithful to our great God and King. 
So let's dig into Judges 2 this morning. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks as we've been walking through Judges, chapters 1 and 2 are serving really as kind of an introduction or an overview to the rest of this this book. So so in chapter 1, Israel continues this conquest into the land of Canaan. Canaan was God's promised land that he was giving to his people where they would dwell with him, where they would flourish with him as their God and uh, them as his people. And so they were to be then this light uh, living under the good reign and rule of God that then is this light to the the pagan nations, drawing them to the goodness and the majesty of God. That was God's intention. That was God's commanding to his people. And so first, as they were entering into the land, we, we, we know that the commands God gave his people was you need to drive out all the pagan nations. God has, God has even promised them that, that as they go to battle, as they're driving them out, he's going to be with them. And that if they'll, if they'll just trust him, if they'll walk in obedience, he's going to go before them and going to give them the victory. He'll, they'll win the battle. He said over and over to them, I've already given you the land. I've given it into your hand. And, and so what we take from that is what he was telling his people is it's already yours. I've given it to you. Just trust me, obey me, and go take it. And yet in chapter 1, we see Israel not walking in obedience. They, they don't drive out the inhabitants of the land that God had told them, and instead they begin to live among these pagan nations. Even verse 6 of chapter 3 wasn't read this morning, but you can even skim through it right now. You'll see that even they begin to intermarry with the, the nations that were surrounding them. They were becoming intimately connected with these pagan nations. And it doesn't take long for Israel to forget God. And instead, they chase after and yearn and long for these, these false gods, these idols of all these wicked nations, and they become like them. That's what chapter 2 then reveals, Israel's repeated disobedience, Israel's repeated unfaithfulness, their failure to repent, their failure to walk in obedience. They become so, as we just said a second ago, intimately connected with the gods of this world, the, the idols of the pagan culture, that they, they no longer are that light. They no longer look anything like what God had set them apart to be and what God had called them to be. Chapter 2 introduces us as well to this cycle that we're going to see of sin and its consequences. And we're going to see throughout the remainder of the book. It also, though, introduces us, chapter 2 does, to God's grace, his deliverance that that we're going to see throughout the remainder of Judges, their deliverance from captivity, from enslavement, from what was seeking to rob them of their their life and their joy and their purpose and their identity as a, a people of God. And this is what we begin to see in verse 16, God's God's deliverance. See, check out verses 16 and 18 again. It said in verse 16 that the, the, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 18 says something very similar. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and had oppressed them. Now, Again, the question before us this morning is how do we stay faithful to God when, when the temptations of this world are so overwhelming? So I'm going to give us three grace-driven, uh, spirit-empowered imperatives this morning. All right, three grace-driven, spirit-empowered imperatives of how we accomplish that, that question. Number one, walk in the freedom brought about through God's deliverance. Walk in the freedom that's brought about through God's deliverance. 
Look at those verses again in verses 16 and 18. What, what do we see there? It was God who raised up judges. God who raised up deliverers. Now, again, it, it's so important for us to, to grab a hold of this. Israel did not dig themselves out of the hole in which they found themselves. God acted. God hears their cry, sees a people unable to do anything, and God responds. God raised up judges. Now, it's important that we understand who judges were in this day. Uh, don't think courtroom judges deciding legal matters. These weren't uh, men and women in, in black robes. All right, so, so get Judge Judy out of your mind, right? This is, not the, this is not the people's court taking place in the book of Judges. These were, these were military uh, tribal leaders who fought and led the, the people out of enslavement and out of oppression. And, and, and these judges, as we're going to start seeing next week, uh, they were ferocious, ferocious. Uh, we're going to see that in just a couple of weeks as Judges begins to walk through many of their stories. Uh, this was an incredibly violent and oppressive time in Israel's history. But that's what sin produces. That's, what sin, that's, that, that's the consequence of what sin brings about. Produces corruption and decay. Produces enslavement. Sin destroys all that is good and all that is right in God's world for his people. And so, so warring against sin, battling sin and oppression and enslavement, it's going to be violent. It's going to be messy. And so Israel, through their own doing, their own disobedience, their own unfaithfulness, they brought about on themselves their own enslavement to these nations and to these false gods. And as we saw even last week in verse 15, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, what it left them in was in terrible distress, is how verse 15 ends. The very gods, think about this, the very gods of the pagan nations, the very idols that, these, that, that Israel was chasing after, that they desired, were the very gods, the very nations that in turn would just enslave them and oppress them and leave them in terrible distress. Is that not what sin does every single time in our lives? The very things that we chase after in this world, because we believe, we believe that this will give me joy. This will give me the freedom I, I, I want. The things that we chase after in this world end up only oppressing us and enslaving us. I'm sure many of us have, over the years, seen images, seen videos of Men and women in major cities all across the U.S. right now who are living on the streets. And as they're living on the streets, we've probably seen these, these images, seen these videos. And, and, and they're strung out on, on drugs. It's a horrific, sad image. But it's an image of what sin ultimately will do to you. The very thing that they're running to. The very thing that they desire, the very thing that they want above all things because they believe what it's promising them, that they'll find pleasure, that they'll find escape. It's the very thing that's enslaving them. It's the very thing that's killing them. And while that image that maybe we have in our minds is jarring to us, that, that's what all sin will ultimately do. That's what all sin will ultimately lead us down to that path of, of, of destruction and decay the sin of covetousness, take just that sin, of needing, I need to have what others have. That sin, if you continually pursue it, I've got to have what others have, that will enslave and destroy you. 
If you believe ultimate joy is only found in the accumulation of more and more stuff, then you're still going to discover down the road that you will never have enough. And so the pursuit for more and more and more will continue to overtake you until you have in, the, in, the, in your wake just a, a trail of broken relationships, superficial friendships that have nothing but feelings of anxiety and depression and fear because you have to have more. You don't have enough. And then there's fear that what you do have might be taken away, right? So you see how it begins to enslave you. That which you think will bring you joy and freedom and life ends up killing you, destroying you, enslaving you, oppressing you. This is what Jesus said the enemy has set out to do. There's nothing in Scripture that any of this stuff is hidden. John 10.10, Jesus says, listen, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's that's his mission statement. Uh, the, The thief comes, the enemy comes with one motive, one intention, one goal, steal, kill, destroy. So when we chase after these things, that's exactly what will come about. Israel chased after the gods of the pagan nations, and all they got in return was enslavement. The nations had, it says, plundered them, stolen from them. Right? The very gods that they thought would, would give them what they were looking for ended up taking everything from them. But God, we see even in 16 and 18, was moved to pity. He, he felt compassion for his children. And so again, hear this. He acted. God acted. He raised up a deliverer. He raised up someone to rescue them out of the hands of those who had enslaved them. Do you hear the gospel in those verses? Do you see it? Do you see the gospel in these verses? Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But the two greatest words in all of Scripture, verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were at one point enslaved to our sin without hope. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, who loved us with a love that is incomprehensible, sent Jesus as the deliverer. God acted. He, he brought us out of what was oppressing us, afflicting us, enslaving us. See, the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished is that the, that the enemy who seeks to plunder us, Jesus came and plundered him plundered him through his life, his death, his resurrection. It's what Jesus' own words say in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, he came as he was bringing the kingdom of God into this world, from, as he raised from, from the dead, he removed the power and the dominion of the enemy over us. The enemy's house has been plundered. 
When, when Jesus walked on this earth and as he, was, as he was healing and as he was doing all these sorts of miracles, there's reasons for why. It was, it, was, it was to affirm his divinity, but at the same time, he was showing the enemy has no power anymore. All that sin was seeking to do, steal, kill, destroy, he says to the, the paralyzed man, get up and walk. The, the enemy's house is being plundered, has been plundered, which means sin no longer has dominion over you. Hear that, brothers, Sisters, sin no longer is your master. It has no dominion over you. The enemy's house has been ransacked. Christ has triumphed over the grave, over sin, over death. So, so that means through repentance from sin, by faith in his life, his death, his resurrection, we now have, through Christ, a new identity. We're no longer slaves of sin. That's our identity apart from Christ. You are a slave to sin. But through Christ, we have a new identity. We've been set free. We're no longer orphans. We're adopted children in the family of God. This is what Christ has brought about. And so because this is true, because that's true, walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. You've been set free Walk in that. You're no longer a slave of the enemy. His home has been decimated. Christ has delivered us from his grasp. He is not our master. So walk in that truth, meaning meditate on what the gospel has purchased for you. Meditate on your new identity in Christ. Dwell on these things. Rehearse these truths time and again when the temptations to wander abound. When the, the promises of the world say, come over here, you remind yourself of, no, here's who I am. This has no dominion over me. I walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for me. And I use the word walk very intentionally because it's a term of action. It's a term of movement. When, when it comes to being healthy, I think just physical health, when it comes to being healthy or being unhealthy, what's easier? What's easier, being healthy or being unhealthy? Unhealthy. Why? Because you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. It's just like what me, me and my wife doing that diet, right? I'll cheer you on from the sidelines while I'm scooping up ice cream. That's much easier to do than saying I'm cutting out all things that are actually unhealthy for me, right? So it's unhealthy to be, it's easier to be unhealthy. Sit around, do nothing, eat whatever, boom, unhealthy. Just magically happens. And it doesn't take long either, does it? Now what's harder? What's harder? Being healthy. Why is that? Because we've got to sacrifice. You've got to sacrifice what you eat. You've, you have to get up and you've got to move around. There's sweat, there's pain, there's tears, there's striving, there's straining. And you've got to be consistent in every single day. Well, if it's like that for physical health, it's the same thing with spiritual health. If you want to be unhealthy spiritually, that's, that's easy. Don't do anything. Don't do anything. As, as one pastor said, no one ever stumbles into godliness. You don't stumble into that. But growth and holiness takes, as Don Carson has said, grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort. So, so brother, sister, church, we, we walk. 
We walk in the freedom that Christ has pre- We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We labor in prayer. We train ourselves in godliness. This comes about through grace-driven effort. But walk in what Christ has accomplished and purchased for us through his life, his death, his resurrection. Secondly, how do we stay faithful to God when the temptations of the world are overwhelming? Second thing is to eliminate then anything that's going to rob you of affection for God. In verses 16 and 18, we, we looked at the God's grace and his deliverance of his people, but in verses 17 and 19, we see their failure, their failure to walk in the freedom that God had purchased for them. And they continually, you see the words, they continually turned away, chased after the very gods and nations that were afflicting them. Verse 17 uses very startling language. Look at it. Look at verse 17. The author says, Israel hoard after other gods. Another way of saying it is Israel prostituted themselves. That's striking language. And what's the author trying to communicate in, in using this, this language? Certainly the, the, the seriousness of sin. But I, I believe with the use of that language, the, the author is showing the relational damage that sin brings about. The sin is not just an arbitrary breaking of a rule. I've heard one person explain sin this way or misconception of sin this way. Um, it, it's like being like when we go a couple miles over the speed limit. Okay? So and I'm not talking about excessive speeding. I'm, I'm talking about like, oh, I went 32 and a 30. So yes, technically, were you breaking the law, violating the law? Yeah, you, you were. Speed limit is 30. You went 32, right? So you broke the law. You violated the law. But no one was affected by that. Uh, no one was hurt. No, no one is staying up at night, rending their garments, weeping because I've, I've violated the law of going two miles over the posted speed limit. And oftentimes, that's how we see sin. It's how we see it. We, it yes, we recognize, yes, it's the, it's the breaking of a law. Yes, I understand that. It's a breaking of law, but, but oftentimes it seems like that's as far as we go with it. I, I broke a law, but no one's affected. No, that's why we don't feel the the weight of our sin. No, we think no one was really affected by it. It's not a big deal. This was done in private. Nobody saw it. What, what the author, though, of Judges is communicating, though, is that sin is, as one commentary puts it, spiritual adultery. That's what sin is, spiritual adultery. Sin is not only the breaking of God's law, it's the fracturing of a personal, intimate relationship with our Creator. Now, Tim Keller says it this way, that God does not merely want us to know and obey him as a citizen obeys a king or merely to follow him as a sheep follows a shepherd. He wants us to know him and love him as a wife loves a husband. And so the temptations facing us from the the world are not only tempting us just to break God's law, but they're robbing us of affection and relationship with God. And when we understand this, it makes more sense why, why God then responds in verse 20 to Israel's disobedience with anger. It makes sense then why, why, why God says what he does when he gives his people the, the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, when he, when he commands them not, not to have any other gods before him. He says in verse 5, you should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We often see jealousy as a, as a negative emotion, don't we? But, but that's not the case here. How can, how can God be a jealous God? How is it right that God is jealous? 
Here's how I've heard someone explain it, uh, the righteous jealousy of God before. I, I thought it was a, gr- a great way to explain it. I'll use my, my marriage as an example. Uh, I, I've been married to my wife now for just over 19 years, and it, it goes without saying, but I'll, I'll say it. I, I love my wife. I do anything for her. I enjoy being with her, enjoy being with my wife. We have a great marriage, great relationship. So I love my wife. Now, if I saw someone if I, if I saw her talking to another guy and, and just immediately flew into a jealous rage, that, that, that's, that's insecurity, that's control, that's, that's not a righteous type of jealousy, right? Because that's me just wanting control over her and you can't talk to anybody without me being present. That's a wrong kind of jealousy. But if I saw some guy come up to her and begin flirting with her, undermining me, talking negatively about me, trying to tear me down, to to be able to pull her away from me in a very obvious way, with very obvious intentions. Would it not be right? If I just stood back and said, well, it's her decision, you know? No, he'd be like, what are you doing? Get over there. You see what he's doing? Like, it would be right of me in that moment out of, out of a righteous jealousy to confront that guy and be angry with him and say, get, go, like, get out, right? Like, because of what he's attempting to do. Of course, that would be a right type of jealousy. Why? Because it's my wife. I'm her husband. We've covenanted together. And so any guy that's trying to break that relationship is going to be met with a very righteous anger. My, my jealousy is motivated in that moment by love, not insecurity. When the people of Israel sought out other gods, they were committing the spiritual adultery and God's right response was anger motivated by love for his children because they belong to him. They're his. See, our warring against sin is not just so we don't break some arbitrary rule. It's because sin is seeking to fracture the relationship. Sin does fracture the relationship. So staying faithful in the midst of temptations means we've got to eliminate anything that's seeking to rob us of affection for him. And and, and I would add as well, then we we fill our life with that which stirs our affection for him. There's two things within the text that guide us here in this this main point. Let me give you two really quick things. Uh, so, So eliminating things that rob us affection. So one of the things that Israel failed to do is they failed to listen to their judges. And so their leaders, uh, at least the earlier judges who, who were still faithful to God, were, were seeking to warn them of the dangers ahead. But the text says they, they did not listen. They didn't listen to their, their, their judges. The beauty and the safety as we look at that even today. Beauty and safety that comes within the church today is the gift of other brothers and sisters who covenant together to help the whole body, entire body, grow in likeness of Christ. And and so it means we are speaking into one another's lives. There's two things even, if that's a sub-point, here's two more sub-points, sub-sub-points, right? So two things with with that when it comes to listening. Um, Let me ask us, are, are we caring for one another? Are we caring for one another in such a way that seeks to remind us of the hope of the gospel, where our identity is found? Are we, as the church, bearing with one another and lovingly pointing out when another brother or sister begins to wander, begins to drift away from the hope, the truth of the gospel? And so are we speaking into people's lives? But here's the second little sub-sub point. Are we then listening? Are we listening to one another? Are we humble enough to receive loving feedback and gracious confrontation when we begin to stumble? And so Israel failed to listen 
to their judges. Listen and heed the warnings that, that they were laying. Say, don't go down this path. And they weren't listening. But the second thing Israel uh, failed to do is they did not throw away any, any practices which led them into spiritual adultery. That's what we see at the end of verse 19. They did not, the word used there is drop, means cast away any of their, their practices or their, their stubborn ways. For them, nothing changed in their life. Nothing changed in their life after God had delivered them. They just continued to embrace and flirt with the gods and idols of the world. And so it's no surprise then that they quickly dove back into open rebellion against God. I said this the other week, but, but sin is, is radically set on destroying you. Hear that. It is radically set on destroying you. And so we must be radical in destroying sin. Let me give us an example that is prevalent, sadly, even within churches today. For some in here, the sin of lust has overtaken you. You spend hours on end and in hiding, viewing pornography, objectifying women who are image bearers of God. And there's part of you, and as I've met with so many, right, there's, there's part of, of you that I want victory. You want victory. And, 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 and that doesn't, I don't want to give in time and again, but here's what happens so often. There's nothing that changes in your life that is radically battling against a sin. Other than you just saying, okay, this is the last time. This is the last time. I'm not doing it again, other only to do it again and again and again. And so the charge from Scripture we take is let's expose that sin. Let's bring it into the light. How do you do that? Well, you confess it. You confess it before God. You confess it before other trusted brothers. And, and, and the response so often is, well, no, I don't want to tell anybody about it. That's, that's what we I don't want to tell anybody about it. Okay, well, okay, get rid of anything that... that, that tempts you toward that. Get, get rid of that computer. Get rid of your smartphone. Get a dumb phone. Remove that temptation. Be, be radical in what you've got to do to fight this. And, and then the response is, well, no, I, I need my smartphone. I've got to have this. You, you see what I'm saying? Like we, here, okay, here's ways in which we're radical, and then we always have a response to it. Well, here's why I can't do that. And so nothing changes. Nothing changes. You don't cast anything away, and then you wonder why you continue to battle the same sins over and over again in our lives. The other day, I was putting a baking sheet into our oven, and my, my finger bumped into the grate uh, just for a split second like that. And, oh, man, did I pull my finger away as quickly as possible. And even for that split second that my finger had touched that grate, it still left even like a little mark on my finger. And it reminded me of two things in that moment. Uh, one, that, 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 that's got to be our response to temptation. That's got to be our response to sin, a quick recoil, fleeing from it, running from it as fast as possible. I don't want to be near it. Because secondly, even a brief brush with sin, I, 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 I thought of, leaves a mark. It's poisonous. It's, it's poison. It's going to leave a mark. It's going to affect you. So how, how do we remain faithful to God when the temptations of the world are overwhelming? We, we walk in the freedom that was purchased for us and we eliminate anything that's robbing us of affection for God. And I'll add to that, you, you add things within your life that stir your affection. Lastly, number three, taste and see the bitterness of sin and the sweetness of God. It was Thomas Watson who said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. 
In the remaining verses of chapter 2 and into the first six verses of chapter 3, we see God's response to Israel's unfaithfulness. Three times God says he will not drive out the surrounding nations, but he's going to leave them there, and he uses this word three times to test them. In verses 21 and 22, we see that. I, I will no, no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. He says it again in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says it in verse 4. I'm testing them. Typically, when I start studying through a text, I write down lots of questions that just pop off the page, come to my mind when I'm reading through it. And one of the questions that drove my study of, of this text this past week was this question. Why did God need to test Israel? And then I wrote, wrote another question underneath that. Why didn't he just remove the pagan nations so they wouldn't be tempted in the first place? Why leave them there so that they're tempted? Just take them out so then they're not tempted. That seems in such a human way, problem solved. God, I figured this one out for you. Just take all of our temptations away and we won't stumble into them. No spiritual adultery. But when, when you study out the word testing, the answer for why he leaves them becomes clear. Because the word test in this text means to ascertain one's true nature. That's what testing is. Ascertaining one's true nature. Meaning this, that the passage before us today is about relationship. It's about covenant faithfulness to a holy God. It's a, it's a text about God's love for his children and his desire for us to walk in joyful obedience with him a desire to walk in that obedience with our God. And testing reveals the heart and what the heart loves. Testing also is revealing the sufficiency or the insufficiency of even what's being examined. See, God's testing of, of the people is not about him deceiving or, or tricking them into sin. It's not his cruelty. What it, what it was doing, though, was revealing that their hearts, they, they still desire sin. You desire, I could still take the temptation away from you. Your heart is no different. It still desires wickedness. See, I, I began by asking, wouldn't it have been easier to just remove the, the nation so they wouldn't be tempted? But in doing that, it doesn't change the facts, fact that their hearts were still cold and unfaithful. They were tested. Think, think of it this way, in a, in a classroom setting. In a classroom setting, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be easier if for the teacher and for the students... If the teacher didn't put the time in to all that instruction, all that teaching, just walked in on day one and said, hey, guys, here's your syllabus. Let's just have a good time, and I'm going to give you all an A. I'm not going to teach through it. Just, it's a lot of work for me. I don't want to grade through all this stuff. Uh, just get, just, you got an A. But, but let's say that classroom was, was one filled with a bunch of 15- and 16-year-olds learning how to drive. So if that teacher never taught and, and never tested them, I, I don't think I want to be on a road when that class is released with their license somehow to get behind the wheel of a car. Because they were never tested to reveal that you don't know what you're doing. Testing is revealing one's true nature. It's ascertaining one's true nature. And testing reveals the sufficiency and insufficiency of whatever is also being examined. See, God left the nations and their, their gods among the people. All Israel experienced as they chased after these false gods as they tested whether or not these false gods are good or not, they always resulted in terrible distress, oppression, affliction. The testing of these false gods revealed their bitterness and their insufficiency. God was allowing them to taste the bitterness of idolatry. What Israel, this generation, failed to do, though, is they never tasted the sweetness of God. 
many of, many of you in here as we come to a close here this morning have experienced significant suffering, pain, trials, hardship. Others have tasted the deep bitterness of, of what the world offers and what the sin produces and testimony after testimony could be given of the bitterness of sin. And from those experiences, you've, you've learned and you have gazed upon the glory of God and his mercy and his grace and his deliverance. You've tasted the, the, the sweetness of his presence in those moments. But for others, though, maybe you, you've just become accustomed to the taste of sin and what the world offers. Either you've never tasted the sweetness of Christ to begin with, which is his invitation to you this morning to come and drink deeply from, from a well which will never run dry. Come find eternal life through life, death, resurrection of Christ alone. Maybe you've never tasted the sweetness of Christ, or maybe for others, it's just been far too long since you've drunk from that well, which never runs dry. And the last point I made this morning, I, I talked about being radical against sin. Scripture affirms this, yes, yet... Yet we also have to recognize that just a simple removal of temptations is not what draws you to Christ. So take the example I gave. You just getting rid of a phone doesn't make your heart all of a sudden long for Jesus. It's a help, but, but what you need, that's why I said you remove that which robs you, but you've got to fill that which stirs you. And, and so what we need is a heart that desires him, a heart that, that desperately wants him above all things, a heart that's tasted what the world offers and it's bitter, and has also now tasted the sweetness, the sufficiency of Christ. And once you've tasted that, there's no way I can go back. First, I heard someone explain it this way. Once you've, once you've eaten a filet, you don't want to go back to bologna. This is, this is the idea, but we're, we're stuck on the bologna sandwiches when the filet is offered, or whatever you like, right? How do we remain faithful to God when the temptations of the world are overwhelming? We gaze upon the beauty and the glory of Christ above all things. We recognize that there's nothing that compares to him. Where else in the world can we find a love like what Christ has for us? He laid down his life for his people who didn't even desire that he do so. Where else can we find the acceptance we so desire outside of the acceptance we have with God through faith in Jesus? Where else can we find the meaning and the purpose and identity that is bigger than us and invites us into a mission that's global and it's life-changing? Where else can you find the joy that is eternal and full outside of the joy you have in relationship with Christ? Brothers and sisters, may we behold him. Let's walk in the freedom God has purchased for us Let's cast aside anything that's going to rob us of affection for him. Let's, let's drink deeply of the sweetness of Christ. Let's pray.